Thanks for listening to this Word in Your Ear podcast. If you'd like to get early access to all our productions ad-free, priority booking for our live events, and to take part in our weekly quiz, go to patreon.com slash wordinyourear for more details. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. You're listening to a podcast from The Word. We should just get going. Should we just yeah, get going? Exactly. I think we should. Why don't we get going? Do you want to start? Yeah. Or shall I tell you about my journey here? I could tell you about yeah, I've had a very I think bad, I should do that. I've had a really terrible uh, experience. I, I'm finding it very hard to recover from, actually. I, um, it, in the last 10, 15 years, I've had a, a big problem on the telephone that people occasionally hear my voice and think that I'm Jeremy Clarkson. Okay, that's <laughs> uh, something I've learned to deal with. Because I'm a, you know, Southern Counties public school wanker, so I can suppose... <laughs> but anyway, something much worse just happened. I was on the tube and uh, coming up to here, and the tube was packed with... Well, I think we're Argentinian rugby fans. Argentina played last night, didn't they, right? Spanish, speaking Spanish anyway. And the only word I can understand that they're saying is Jeremy Clarkson. <laughs> say Jeremy Clarkson. And, they're, and they're pointing at me. And I'm just sitting on the tube reading a book. I'm not speaking. I'm reading a book. So I now not only stand like Jeremy Clarkson, I apparently look like Jeremy Clarkson. And a load of people stepped... I'm so heartbroken about this. A load of people stepped in and said very sweetly, said, look, it's, it's not Jeremy Clarkson. Please leave him alone. Hey, of course, so, and, and, and of course, you'll all be aware that last time Jeremy Clarkson went to Argentina, he had to leave in somewhat... Something of a hurry. And so this is probably a death squad God, that's I, been sent all the I, way. They're just going around the tubes. I hadn't realised that. So i lucky for... to be alive, is your point. While we're talking anyway. about, while we're talking about um, things that happened to Mark in this region, I couldn't let this opportunity go by without letting you know that the last time Mark was in Islington, which is about a week ago, yes? Yeah. And Mark was, was interviewing Chris Salovitz at, uh, at Waterstone's... Oh, Round the corner. And, um, and go on, tell everybody what happened afterwards, Mark. Well, OK, what happened was, we, we, yeah, just right the corner and this, we went for, me and two mates went for a, for a drink. Um, we said, what's the nearest pub? And we'll meet you all there. We went to the Slug and Lettuce. Slug and Lettuce, has everyone been to a Slug and Lettuce? Please never go to a Slug and Lettuce. Well, I had no option because I wasn't allowed in. We got there and two enormous ape-like bouncers outside got hold of my mate, who's probably here, actually, the great Caroline Grimshaw from Word magazine, who was wearing a hat. She said, she's not going in there wearing a hat, mate. 
And I said, don't be ridiculous. He said, are you calling me ridiculous? And he got a hold of me and he dragged me, physically dragged me out of the slug and lettuce out into Upper Street. And he said, you're saying it's ridiculous that I am doing what I am enforced to do, which is to enforce the rules and regulations. I'm about to be arrested again now. It's astonishing. The sound of young Islington. Exactly. And uh, anyway, the, the, what I'm proud of is I was thrown out of a slug, slug and lettuce at my age, which is, a, which is, which is slightly better. Actually. It's a com- I think of that as being a compliment. Have you ever been but thrown out of a pub before? Never, no. You get to this advanced stage. <laughs> no, it's great. All these things are happening. But look, let's get the show rolling. Fantastic to see you all. This is terrific. Now, if you've ever been to see the Stones recently, or Dylan, or Stevie Wonder, or Peter Gabriel, or Lady Gaga, it's highly likely that this guy was uh, directing their stage show, and in the last 35 years, he's seen the role of the lighting man change from the kind of, um, you know, old roadie with a follow spot, you know, and a big uh, load of keys, to somebody in the control room effectively running the whole show. And he's even uh, directed the, the Olympic opening ceremony. So has worked with the Queen, all the greats. So um, I'm hoping we're going to hear about that, and also uh, Michael Jackson and uh, Golden Earring. So please welcome the fantastic Patrick Woodruff. Here he is. And Patrick, we're going to start. This is a picture of you at, well, in the office with a, a pair of binoculars, which gives you some I'm idea of at, how at the huge. Age now that I don't just need spectacles, I need binoculars wherever I go. This was in the control room of the Olympic Games, and they built us this extraordinary control room. Clearly, we had to have a room that could see the whole of the track. It was built right at the top of the seats. It was beautiful, air-conditioned, dry. We were the only people who didn't get wet in the whole six weeks before the Olympics. But they said, where do you want it? You can have it anywhere you like. And I said, I'll have it right opposite the end of the 100 metres. On the off chance that I might be there that night on some spurious judge, because we were all crowded in that night when we saw Usain Bolt do his business. But yeah, it was a very big stadium and you needed binoculars to see what was going on. (laughs) But but you, when you start working with musicians, you you know, you go to them. I remember you telling me, you started working with Dylan, I think it was, and you go to them and you say, well, how would you like to look? Which, in fact, here is Dylan, in fact, on stage, hopefully lit by you. Do you want to look enigmatic? Do you want to look sexy? Do you want to look mysterious or whatever? That's how it works, I think. That's the beginning of the conversation. I think it's more general than that. I think you're trying to make a connection with these people. And sometimes they know clearly what they want. Sometimes they don't know what they want at all. But it's simply about making some kind of relationship with them. But I was looking at the picture of Paul McCartney, and I had done a few things with him. He called me one day, and he said, oh, is Paul here? And, and he said, I'm going to be doing this show at the White House in, in uh, Washington. Which, which I'd really like you to come and help me do it. So we talked. It was a nice conversation, and he hung up the phone. And that night, I remember going out to dinner, at a very good dinner, and writing a rather long, involved email to him had nothing to do with lighting at all. It was about what I thought he should wear and what songs I thought she should sing and what he should start by playing Michelle because Michelle Obama was there. And then I did the, the, broke the golden rule of sending an email after 9 o'clock at night <laughs> to somebody that I don't really know very well telling me exactly what he should do. Of course, I didn't hear a word back from him until I got to Washington two weeks later, rather nervously, and he saw me come and he went, Hey, Pat, love the email. So... <laughs> That I got away with, but it's still a rule that shouldn't be broken. No emails. But I love the idea that you're also involved in telling people what to wear. So that's part of the whole spectacle, isn't it? I, I mean, think, you know, it's really interesting. A lot of these people, uh, these people, you know, they're extraordinary performers and they're incredibly confident. I've worked with the Rolling Stones for 32 years. Uh, but still, people like Jagger, who's one of the great front men, the great performer, would be very interested to hear 
an opinion of somebody like me or somebody who works with them of how it might be or how you could make it better or I think there's an innate sense of insecurity about standing up in front of 85,000 people, however many times you've done it before. So the support of people who understand the the process, you know, the craft of being a performer is important to them. So there's a lot of planning goes on before first night, obviously. Yeah, and and more so than it used to be. I mean, many shows now are very theatrical. When I started, of course, you stood up with some lights and you went on stage and you performed. Maybe kind of Peter Gabrielish dressing up as a tree (laughs) business went on. But but now it's much more considered. People go on stage on time. A lot of the stuff that is is controlled lighting, video, is done with time code and on computers that have to be... I mean, it can still be visceral. It can still be exciting. Well, to get across the scale of this, I think we've got a picture of the, one of the groups you first worked with. There they are. I don't have to tell you, of course, it's the mighty golden earring. You know that. We all know that. But that's roughly when you started. It also reminds you just how primitive the whole thing was, because we're going to see an extraordinary picture in a minute of, 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 of a, the spectacle of a stadium. But, I mean, what, what was it like when you, in those days? What were you required to well, do, well, lighting a group I, like when that? When I started, I, uh, one of the... Um, I used to go on the road with rock bands working for a very small lighting company, but the only lighting company in England called ESP Lighting. And you'd go out with some park hands, 1,000-watt park hands, no trusses, just bolted onto towers, and you'd drive the car and take a lot of speed to stay awake. And Until I worked with Golden Earring, who didn't take speed, but they smoked hashish, and the tour manager was uh, the biggest dope dealer in Amsterdam, so I had a different... Sensibility about yeah. how I saw things slow down a little relaxed. bit. Sometimes but, no lights at but all. But there wasn't really a, an understanding that you were a lighting designer. You were you you did the lights. And yeah. We had these very small control boards which just had some faders and some yeah. flash buttons, and you would do the, do the lights. And sometimes you'd say, oh, "Are you going to do them tonight, or shall I?" And then I worked for a band called the Heavy Metal Kids, oh, yeah. who oh, were really Gary. smart. Gary Holton, really smart kind of punk rock. Band. And then I learned the theatre of lighting. We had a tiny little lighting system, but a year of working with them in little clubs and things around Europe, I really understood about the timing of lighting and how you use colour and how you connected lighting to. So when I got my, my big break, which was with uh, Rod Stewart, he fired his lighting design just before he did um, his, his biggest solo tour, his first solo tour, and I got the job. I was ready. I, had, I understood how lighting worked and what that stuff meant. So was it during that time with heavy metal kids, we're talking about sort of mid to late 70s or something like that, is that when bands started to think about presentation a lot more? I think they did. More? I mean, a lot of it came from technology. So the Pink Floyd, for example, you know, they had lasers because somebody said, well, th- there's this thing called lasers. Let's use lasers. Well, was lasers would just be set off. But slowly but surely, I think, yes, from the 80s onwards we started to really understand what production meant and how you could really enhance a show. And it became very specific that the thing became a grown-up operation when bands stopped playing in theatres and started playing in arenas and then carried on from arenas to start playing in stadia. Because as soon as you did that, you had to have good sound systems and you had to have good lighting and you had to sell people on something that was interesting. And as soon as it happened and a few people got into it, then, of course, it became quite competitive, which behoved people like me who were making a career from it because everyone wanted something that was bigger and better and newer and more interesting than the next one. And now it's a very grown-up industry. And I'm 61, and I'm thrilled that I've had both sides of it. You know, I'm, I'm, I like to do the work that I do now because you can put on extraordinary productions with smart, bright, young people who know what they're doing, wonderful 
lights that change and move colour and video screens that move around and huge scenery and stage sets. But at the same time, we had that extraordinary feeling when you would travel around the world. In 1977, 79, I travelled around the world with Rod Stewart and there were eight of us on the crew and it was some fantasy to travel around the world with great rock music and... Well, we've got a, I think we've got a picture next of um, the kind of control deck. Is that the next picture? Uh, of um, a stone. Here it is. Oh, That's an amazing picture. This <laughs> picture so this for viewers at home, in the listeners at home, is just an amazing... It's, it's like a sort of um, flight deck of a, of, of a spaceship. Yeah, and, and it's astonishing. a small part of it. But, yeah, clearly there's an uh, enormous amount of technology. This was at the Olympics, and this was just as Thomas Heatherwick's... Um, um, Olympic cauldron and you know it's quite interesting if you do a big show if, uh, the, the biggest pressure we get is not so much just doing a big rock show with the stones or something there's 60, 70,000 people maybe watching it but it's not the end of the world if something goes wrong but the stakes were there pretty it is. high there and it's normally what happens if you're filming a show a big live performance after you've got through the first 20 minutes you can see it's looking pretty good and you go oh now we can we'll be okay we can relax but on this you know, just as you got through the amazing chimney going up scene, then you had the helicopter to come, and you better not get that right. And then you had the entrance of the Queen, and then you had the this, and then you had the cold. So we couldn't relax until literally till the fireworks from the Pink Floyd happened. At well, which point, I remember saying to my crew chief, "Well, that went pretty well, didn't it, Rich?" He said, "Yeah, he's a very kind of sanguine, cool guy, very reliable." I said, "Any." problems he said no not really he said well actually about an hour before the show started only three of the olympic rings were working (laughs) and it had been very bad weather and they were literally on the top of the stadium with hair dryers trying remember that beautiful moment when they all floated over imagine what it would have been like i said you didn't say anything to me and he looked at me like a like I was a fool and said you didn't need i didn't think there was an awful lot you could do about it (laughs) Is but, it, with a show like that, is there, is there one person in that stadium who's calling the shots? Oh, who's, yes. And her is name is person? Julia. And her, Julia is from Essex, and she's the show caller. In the theatre, you have a DSM, a deputy stage manager, who sits at the side of the stage and goes, LXQ 53, go, and sound Q 42, go, and there's like eight people listening to her. Uh, uh, Julia had 220 people on the comm system. And I, secretly... You told me this is broadcast, didn't you? Anyway, I have a wonderful... I have the recordings of Julia calling 200 people and calling the entrance to the Queen and calling the helicopter and calling the fireworks. And I I I saw Kenneth Branagh the other day at the airport, and he, of course, did his lovely... um, You know, his big speech... And I was telling him that on the tape, there's a great moment. He has an earpiece, as every one of the 3,000 performers had earpieces, all the volunteers. So Ken, Kenneth is standing by, and you're hearing Julia calling a 1,000 things. LXQ 53, automation queue, there's horses to come on here. Stand by Ken, stand by Ken. And you see Ken standing, <laughs> looking like this. And then she says, go, Ken. And he says, ah, oh, these scepter dials. He does this wonderful thing. And he finishes, and you just hear this voice go, good lad, good lad. <laughs> The impression you get the impression looking at this that, that it must take some of the spontaneity out of rock shows clearly because it's no, not so, really. So, you I, could still this, change. I think this is me and this is my partner Adam. He did most of the talking because they they 
at a certain point would stop listening to me because I would get rather excited. So they told I think they actually changed my switch on the night so that I couldn't actually talk to anybody. But it was not strictly true. But there were 73 people on my team all on headsets. So big, all the um, spotlight operators were 38 of them. I think they were all volunteers. And we had half a dozen board operators. But, you know, it was computerized in that when LXQ63 was called everyone pressed their buttons and certain things happened. So all that was recorded and was created, but it's still pretty live when you press that button, when somebody presses the button. We so, could just show a picture of, of Stevie Wonder, actually, which is really interesting. Because, uh, oh, no, he's got the stone. We've got the stones. No, that's, let's, Stevie let's Wonder that. thinks his show <laughs> looks like this. But. That's a fantastic picture. <laughs> so that gets across just the incredible spectacle. So, yeah, but so you started as a kind of a standard rock and roll kind of lighting man, yes? Without theatre training or anything like that? Or did you? No, you not at all. But you've slowly had to... You know, it's moved into, into theatre, hasn't it? Yeah, well, I mean, I do a lot of theatre shows, probably less than half the work I do now, rock concerts, I make the lighting for, for theatre, for opera, for architectural things, for events and stuff. But the interesting thing about rock concerts is, you know, with the Stones, when I started working with them in 1982, I had very little to do with them. But then I, through the 80s, I worked with Mick on his solo career because the band didn't work for seven years or something. So when they got together in 1989 for Steel Wheels, which was the real game-changer in terms of production, uh, at that point I had worked a lot with Mick and we started to understand things like, you know, how did you walk onto the stage? You know, you go from the left or the right? What do you say? When do you say, hello, Wembley? Do you see it straight away? And he's a man of huge craft. He's extraordinary to watch him perform. And uh, so by the time we got to 1989, and the show was designed by the late, great Mark Fisher, who, des- who was this wonderful architect who died a couple of years ago, very sadly. But he changed the way that rock concerts were. In the past, we had simply hung up some screens left and right, made the name of the record on it, and you had some lights. And Mark started to create these three-dimensional buildings. Steel Wheels was this huge thing. And from that were the big Floyd shows. the big. So, But by this time... Uh, this is fairly recently. This was just last year, I think, in Paris, this show. So, you know, and also there's a big deal between when you put up a light with a gel in it and you put up a light that you could press a button that could turn to any colour and move to any position. Well, we're all used to this now. But to be able to have, you know, in the old days, if I had, I can't remember, there's like three or 400 lights here, I would have had to choose that that one was red, that one was blue, that one was green, that one was shining at the drums, that was and then control them. Now I can press a button and they can all be white or all be blue. So, so it was about that time. So it was about that time that things started to become serious. There's a lovely serious. bit in your... Um, Patrick's written some terrific diaries recording all this, which I hope very much will be published soon. And there's a bit where Keith Richards talks about... They just get used to the scale of it. He says, the venues come in three sizes, like fruit of the loom underwear. Small, medium and large. And also, it's very sweet about Mick Jagger. He says, Mick Jagger can work a coffee table. You can put him on a coffee table and still put on the show, which is really interesting. It's a, you know, I watch him sometimes, and he does. He can play in a club. Literally, I've seen him play in a club like this, and he can play a coffee table. But... What's interesting about him and about many, all the great performers, is it's not just about being in the moment. It's not just about doing the best version of wild horses that you can at any moting. You've also got to say, okay, on the second verse, I'm going to go over there because on the last one I did over there, or the crowd are a bit hot, I'm going to have to cool them down because there's another ad to go, or 
you know, I can see... At one point, you know, he went out on the runway and I think the, the generator had gone and there were no lights on. He could tell that there were no spotlights on him, so he had to stand on the stage. And then as he passed the others, he had to say to them, make sure you don't go... So this is a craft and not a... And I just, I just came back from Brazil today. I was doing Rock in Rio uh, in Rio de Janeiro and there was a band there called The Script. I don't know if you know. And I, I saw this... I, don't, I knew nothing about them. They were second to Queen, I think Queen were the headliners. And I was looking at this guy who was the singer and he and he just had it, you could tell. And I went back to see him afterwards and, and without being patronising, trying terribly hard not to be patronising, telling him that I think he's going to be a huge star. And you see these people who they get it, that they have huge legitimacy, they have genuine authenticity, but they're able to hold an audience like that. And that mix of art and craft is something that I've watched a hundred performers doing over the years and is absolutely fascinating discipline to understand. Nowadays, the kind of... the what used to be called diamond vision in its early days, you know, the big screens, what well, we all thought it was miraculous that you could suddenly see from the back of Wembley Stadium, you know, the performers' features. The, this visualisation that on TV screens, on screens is a huge part of the show, isn't it, nowadays? I mean, we, and it must be that they're the, the kind of colluding with the, whoever's directing the pictures as yeah, they're I going mean, there along. is that, but on the other hand, you have to be very careful that it's not just a TV show. I mean, it's very difficult. So we started to... Um, it used to be that always the, the iMag screens, image magnification, we call them iMag, would be left and right. And then I, I realised people spend most of their time looking there Not when looking the action the was there. So we started to build the, the video screens behind the stage. And then sometimes I'll turn them off or I'll put other things on them or you'll put some content on them to try and... But, you know, if you're in a big stadium, you want to see somebody's face. What a thrill that is to see somebody that close yeah, up. Yeah, yeah. The Bruce Springsteen shows really are cued like, a, like, like television. The, the, the internal dynamic of all the members well, of the he group... Never do, he never does those... anything on stage yeah. that the camera doesn't catch. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. So they've rehearsed those looks that they do to each other. It's a very big, integral part of the show. It strikes me that it's, a, it's like yeah. a TV yeah, show. Yeah, so the, the person who's directing the television images and the lighting person, and he's had the same people with him for years, and that becomes very important. He's pretty this, great. I only put up this uh, Stevie Wonder thing because I thought it was so interesting, the idea that you're trying to explain the concept of colour to somebody who can't see it. And it's really, really fascinating. You know, you, you say to, blue is, 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 is cool and enigmatic. Or yeah. what, what do you say? So I worked with him for the first time in 1984 or something, and he's a pretty special guy. He's everything that you would imagine. He's very big, uh, and he smells beautiful. I always remember that when Lucy met him, my wife met him for the first time. He smells, he's got his lovelies. Anyway, he, I would have the, I would talk to about him. We've all learned strange, strange. <laughs> now, let me tell you about how Paul McCartney smells. No, but he, um, it was wonderful. And I would talk to him about colour and I would talk to him. But he used to talk about vision as that other thing. Hey, that other thing. And, and after these, you know, kind of late-night conversations in hotel rooms where we would, you know, he's quite sort of spacey, I thought, no, I can't explain what that other thing is, but I can explain to him how I could take that away from everybody else. And so we had this really special part of the show. We did it for the first time at the Budokan in Tokyo, I can remember. And he, four or five numbers into the show, he's, he would say, hey, hey, Patrick, Turn out the lights. 
And very slowly we would fade all the lights down on the stage and the musicians would turn off their, their reading lights and the sound engineers on stage and, and sometimes we'd get all the emergency lights turned out. And he would say, I want to take you to this other place. I can see Martin Luther King. And he'd start to play the introduction to Visions of My Mind. You know, that beautiful song, is Hopes for a Better World. And for seven minutes, this connection between him and the audience was as one. And that's all a performer really needs to do. I think it's true of any discipline, performing dif- discipline, whether it's, you know, the opera, the ballet, or the theatre, or Benedict Cumberbatch being his Hamlet, or Mick Jagger, or Bob Dylan. Somewhere, you have to make that connection with an audience. And that's how he did it, and it was extraordinarily moving. Well, we were talking earlier about the idea that, you know, if you're a journalist, your relationship with, with musicians is pretty, pretty fraught. Um, if you're a, a, a photographer, or a hairstylist, or, or, um, or a lighting technician... Your job is entirely to be sympathetic and supportive, to make them look and feel fabulous. And so you've developed a really good relationship with all these people. You know, you spent an extraordinary amount of time you spent with Dylan, driving around in his car and lovely descriptions of him padding about with no feet, no shoes on. With no feet. No feet on, sorry. (laughs) (laughs) The wonders of lighting. (laughs) So do do you feel you've got some real insights into how these people work? You're not suggesting that the relationships with the people I've worked with have never been fraught, are you, Mark? No, no. You, you, didn't you fall out with Keith at one point? I can't remember. There was some he sort of tried big to argument. kill me. Tried to kill you. Okay. Tried to, <laughs> Tell us that one. He tried, tried to shoot me. He, wanted, well, tried to, well, no, he tried to shoot me twice, I think, or at least he suggested that he might. He's the most wonderful man. He's gentle. He's funny. He's very funny. He's bright. But for many years, he was a drug addict and an alcoholic, and it meant that you were never sure which Keith you were going to get. And uh, so. Yeah, and a few times we've had some run-ins. But he's, now is a beautiful time for him because he doesn't take drugs and he doesn't drink now. I don't know how old he is. But, um, and you only get the good Keith. And I think well, the problem... Me, sorry, me, go ahead. Let me ask you this. That from, your, from your position, you know, the general feeling about the Stones is that, is that the general consensus is that Mick Jagger is a kind of um, a slightly controlling uh, businessman and Keith Richards is a warm-hearted, uh, rambunctious music lover. And in my experience, that's, that's simply not true. You know, they have elements of that, but they both have elements of each other. Did you feel the same way? I mean, there's yeah, a cartoon version of what the Stones look like. Yeah, it? and it's, I think it's something that develops all the time. I mean, clearly Mick is very much um, the, the, not the controlling force, but certainly the one who drives the mechanics of the touring. But there's still a group of four people, and they still have exactly the same dynamics that are good and bad, and somebody has a good day and a bad day. But no, for sure, Mick is the person who steers what we're doing and where we go, and, um, and also is very connected with the music and what we're playing. And Keith is not so interested in what the stage might look like, but it better be right. And so he's always included, as all four of them are included in what the thing is right. But it's, I mean, it's a very public, the kind of yin and yang of Mick yeah. and Keith's relationship. But it's in a great place now, which is the sweetest thing. So just to, to go back to Mark's point about the, the, the extent to which they depend on the lighting man. You know, they always say with actors, you know, if you're making movies, you better know the lighting person because they're the one that's going to make you look good. Or they, yeah, it's, I mean, and to be honest, in film, it's a much more technical issue because you're just really looking at how you make somebody look and that that's not really what i do although it's important of course particularly working with women 
to, you know, to get somebody looking really fabulous and get the balance right and the balance for the camera, particularly with the big screens, it's really important. I can say, do they, are they getting... You see, these people are in the very curious position of still touring at the absolute top of the game in their 60s and their 70s when they've looked better in their lives. <laughs> yeah, do, I mean, to some Does that ever come up with any of picture of Dylan does. Bell at Auschwitz, actually. <laughs> Somebody just noticed. Of course it does. I mean, you, you know, you're seeing somebody's you know, ravaged face on occasion on a screen that's 40 feet high. So we tend to shoot a little wider as the shots get a little wider as they get older. Oh, I mean, it's, you could call it vanity or you could just call it pragmatism, really, and it's up to all of us to make them look as good as they can, you know. Right. But there's certainly, you know, you, Keith doesn't really matter what you do. He still looks great. So that's not so much of an issue. What about Bob Dylan? Bob was really interesting. He's a really interesting man. You know, he's all the things you would imagine. He's very enigmatic. He's incredibly private. Um, and the first time I met him, well, he, very quickly, he, I had a call from his manager saying, Bob wants to meet you. He wants you to come and make the lighting for his next tour. And I thought this was some sort of joke because in our business... It's known that he's always been very tricky about his lighting. He wouldn't talk to his lighting guys. He would often take the microphone and just move them into a dark and do whole numbers in darkness. And... But the reason that he called me was that he had opened for the Stones in South America. We'd done some dates in South America and he had opened for the Stones. And he'd come and watch from the side of the stage every night. And I've always taken the same approach with the lighting of the Stones, as in many bands, but certainly the Stones. I've put a white spotlight on each one of them for the whole two and a half hours of the performance and then I make a big thing around them, if it's a ballad it can be mood and sexy and nice or if it's a big rock number lights can be going and it's quite considered but at all the times you can see the four of them because my view is if you've paid the money and Keith Richards doing a guitar solo you still might want to look at Charlie Watts he thought this was a stroke of genius because his lighting guys would put a light on him and kind of leave the rest of the band in darkness, you know, as you might do with a solo performer. You're not going to light, you know, Barbara Streisand's third violinist, the same brightness that you light Barbara Streisand. But being Bob, he hadn't actually thought that the way to fix the problem would just be to say something to somebody. <laughs> the best way to fix the problem would be to move the microphone. So when he saw this, he thought this was some new way of lighting. So I've worked with him for a long time now, and he's wonderful, enigmatic, but he can be funny as well. And, and the first time I ever met him, I, I met him at the sound check and he shuffled him with his hood and, hey, uh, you know, want to talk a little bit? And, uh, and then when I saw him a little bit later, they said, I'll come to his dressing room. And he was dressed like this, ready to go on stage. Hey, come on in, he said. Let me pull up a chair for you. And I th- it was like a... Like, he speaks like Bob Dylan. Yeah, he yeah. speaks like Bob Dylan, and it, and it could be the line of a song. It's a good name for a song. Let me pull up a chair for you. <laughs> How was he described, Dave? You mentioned it the other day. Somebody said he looked like... Was it, was it Vincent Price playing a, uh, the, a Mexican cowboy? Yeah, was it was right? the best... That's his new look. It was David Remnick, the editor of New Yorker, right. on a podcast, said he looks like Vincent Price playing a Mexican okay, cowboy. So yeah. Which is a really good... Um, I really think we've got another shot of, again, to get across the scale of it. Where we got to? Yeah, this is the one. Well, we just come back from Rio. Here we are. This is the Cobacabana Beach uh, concert by the Rolling Stones. I can't now remember what it was, about 2010, something like that. And it's just fascinating because there's so much competition. Around this time, McCartney, I think, had played a, a concert in Milan, a free concert, maybe you lit it, actually, a free, a free concert in Milan, which 500,000 people attended. And there's that wonderful sense of competition that these guys never get over. You know, which is what's they- really unfair is that the person who holds the record for the largest concert that anyone's ever come to see is Rod Stewart. 
And the reason is that this is, uh, on, this is the Copacabana, and this is five kilometers long. And on New Year's Eve, it has this many people from one end to the other. And they have odd stages up there. And Rod played here and somehow managed to swing it that the five million people who turned up that night had all come to see him. So he's in the Guinness Book of Records. But actually, we have the record. The Rolling Stones played to 1.8 million people. Um, and they came just to see them. And the best thing about this is that if you're in a very big, uh, what we would call the Greenfield site, after you being in the, in the biggest stadium that you could get in, which is 100,000 people in American or somewhere, you then play Greenfield sites, which is like Glastonbury or... And people have played to big crowds, half a million people. But when you're filming that, you don't, you don't really have a sense of how many people there are here. But here you do, because this is the Avenida Atlantica, which is the road here that was closed off. And all the way along it are these buildings. I mean, our concert was from down here somewhere up to here. So you have all these buildings that very clearly defines the site on that side. And you have the sea that very clearly defines the, the site on that side. So with all the helicopters they had flying around, it looked extraordinary. And out here, this had three or 400 boats all moored up. And they had this kind of cordon sanitaire here that you weren't allowed to put a boat behind and had all the police boats zooming backs and forwards with their lights on and helicopters going everywhere. And then here, you had every single apartment all with people on the balconies with all the lights on behind them, all silhouetted. So you had a very clear sense of what a million and a half people looked like. I have to say, I realised just how crucial Patrick's relationship with the Rolling Stones was when I was watching them at Glastonbury. Do you remember that? And Mick Jagger suddenly says to the crowd and to the television audience, could you put lights on the crowd, Patrick? And he's actually talking to Patrick from the stage. I was very, very impressed. But you're obviously getting a very different view. It's interesting hearing you talk about that because... You know, Mick Jagger and everybody else, they're doing their bit. Whereas you're looking at the big picture, aren't you? So do you look at other locations in the world and think, I'd like to do so-and-so there, right? It can always get bigger. No, not really. I haven't thought about that, but yeah. Maybe not, because when I see somewhere that would be a magnificent place to put a rock concert on, instinctively I know how difficult it would be (laughs) to put it up. So this was pretty great because everything was right there in front of right, you. Know, right, but, right. but acts are, going back to what you were talking about, acts are very, they, they're very competitive with each other, aren't they? They keep an eye on who's broken yeah, they which go and record. See, but I think it's quite, um, Mick went to see U2 the other day and he said, you have to see this show. It's just fantastic and it completely kind of game-changing. So I went to see it in Rotterdam a couple of weeks ago and it is What was it though? What was it about it that, was, that interested him? It was fascinating. That, that, it was, that it was different, that the, the staging was different. They have this wonderful screen that runs down the middle of the hall with a runway underneath. And, it, and he, I don't think he was saying that's what we should do next time, but I think he's saying that it's always good to see different options and see how I think we might... It's quite difficult with the Stones at the moment because in the past, typically, they would decide to go on tour for 18 months and Mark Fisher and I would go off and we'd make a production for them that might cost 10 or $20 million dollars and we would rehearse it and plan it for six months and then rehearse it, and then off they'd go and they'd end up doing 180 shows. But now they're at the point in their career where they commit to doing um, you know, a South American tour or a, or a European tour of you know, only 20 shows or 15 shows, and it's much more difficult to justify the expense of these big shows. Having said that, it has to still look pretty great. So, it's so do they give you a budget? Do they say the budget for this tour is... No, but I have a pretty good understanding of it what it is, you know. Right, the Stones right. have always done, in my view, you know, they've always been in it half for the money and half for the joy. 
of it. And I think most bands do that. I think it's, and I think if you get that balance wrong, if you did it just for the money, that would be the wrong thing to do. And if you did it just for the joy of it, then nobody makes any money and you end up losing money and that's no fun. How big either. can it get? You know, rock and roll shows, you know, during the time you've worked in it, have gone from, you know, the biggest place was the Albert Hall in London almost, wasn't it? To this kind of scale. How big can it get? How well, many people? But, but typically you, you want to play in an arena or a stadium because then you can do a tour of stadiums and all roughly the same size wherever they are in the world. And so therefore you know that the stage can only fit at one end or if you put it in the middle it's a bit more complicated. But you know in the end you want to sell 60... If it's an 80,000 seat arena you need a stadium you're going to want to sell 65,000 seats so there is a finite size that the stage can be right. but it does depend on technology doesn't it because the trick is to make an 80,000 seat arena feel intimate yeah. there must be a point beyond which it is yeah. also there's few people make... there's few people who can fill those big stadia you know less and less as the time goes on there used to be tours in the summer and you'd look around and there'd be eight acts doing stadium tours and they would all be following each other around but it doesn't happen so much now I don't think yeah yeah actually we've had this already this is this is the uh, this is the, the opening ceremony just have we got the picture of the queen of the Queen, sorry. There she is. There's a Queen. I'm sure you all saw it, the opening ceremony. What was her reaction? It was brilliant. Didn't you talk to her about this moment? I did. I met, her, so I met her last year and she said, I said, you know, ma'am, I was responsible for lighting you. She said, I, I thought the Olympics went terribly well, didn't you? And I said, I thought it did. But, and I said, you know, ma'am, I was responsible for lighting you as you jumped out of the helicopter. And she said, well, of course, I never saw that bit because I had to hide. <laughs> the way they colluded in this. I can't just stand there. Or else I want people to think it's me. So sweet. <laughs> it's so sweet. Hat. It is sweet. It's brilliant. So where are we? I think we're coming up to probably... Oh, I'll tell you, oh, so, I'll tell you something very quickly. I'll tell her. you something very quickly about the... It was very complicated to get the helicopter in, into exactly this, the right position to drop the people within the time frame of the video, the lighting... Getting the Queen, but it's very complicated. And there was an amazing helicopter pilot called Mark Wolf, who was the James Bond helicopter pilot, and they practiced things over and over and over again. So everything had to be called by the lovely Julia from Essex, who would call the helicopter in from position Bravo to overhead, standby, ready to report that the jumpers are ready to go, jump master to report lined up. It was so complicated to say that they gave them code words. So the code word for each of these acts was the name of a James Bond movie. Yeah. And it made it so exciting to hear it. And you'd hear Julia go, uh, stand, by, uh, stand by, heli, overhead, odd job, odd job, and report Thunderball. Roger. And then you'd, then you'd be over, and Thunderball was, I'm ready to go, my jumper's in a position. you go, stadium control, 52733, we have Thunderball, we have Thunderball. So exciting. And then, and then, then the, the thing for the... the the final thing, which is my jumpers have gone and I'm clear. And you heard Mark with this pride in his voice saying, 52733, heli stadium control. Shaken, but not stirred. I'm fascinated by Julia from Essex. I mean, seriously. I, I mean, because that's a job that no human being has done before, isn't it? That kind of level of... No, I mean, there, there are people who do it, but, I mean, she's so... She's considered the best at yeah, it, sure. you know, and she has to be completely cool and keep everything together, but she also has to make sure that people are relaxed. It's partly showbiz, technology, yeah. it's military, yeah. it's everything, yeah, isn't she's it? she's extraordinary. Yeah. It's, it's amazing. Lady Gaga. Yes, I, I, I just put that in because I think she said to you... Uh, 
you mentioned you'd done the Queen, and she said, I thought I was the Queen. Yes, yeah, that's right. <laughs> Some people but think I'm the Queen. Show. She's amazing. Yeah, I've seen this show. This woman is fantastic. And what's weird about her, I was talking about authenticity in, in terms of artists. I think she's totally and completely and 100% committed and authentic. This is somebody who dresses up in meat and does this and does ridiculous kind of self-publicizing things. But for sure, she's serious about it. It's contrived, but it's real, if that is, if you can understand that. Well, and also, she's an extraordinary singer and an extraordinary piano player. A lot, a lot I, of what she does is make you put a political point, I think, about Madonna. Because Madonna famously didn't... Madonna said you, you can't have Madonna singing and Madonna dancing. I mean, you can't have them both at the same time. So if I'm miming, I'm miming. But she makes a point of singing live, doesn't she? And pauses between songs. Yeah, get a no, breath she back. sings live, and I don't know how much Madonna does. I, don't, I think she's sort of beyond trying to be better or worse than someone else. I just loved her. She was tricky... She wasn't easy, and she, because she was absolutely sure at the age of 26 she knew exactly what she wanted to do. And um, that they weren't always the right decisions, but she was sure of it. And when, and when they weren't right, she would come up and she'd say, I'm sorry, I got that wrong. And um, I think she's wonderful. Well, we're just going just gonna to end, really, with this extraordinary, uh, this extraordinary part of your, of your career, which is that you were working on the tour that nobody ever saw. Nobody ever saw this picture. This was Michael Jackson's 2009 comeback tour, which never happened. In fact, you're you, you going to read something from it, well, yeah. Um, read something from the diary. Good idea. I will do. 25th of June. It's a beautiful morning as I drive to the Staples Centre with Mark and Demphis. We talk about the show number by number. This song's finished... This needs a little more work. What about the colour in that one? But generally, we're more than happy after last night's run, and we allow ourselves to bask in the delicious comfort of knowing that the pressure is off, and this will truly be one of the great shows of all time. I'm sitting at the lighting board when the phone rings. It's my friend Menomayas calling me from Paris. Is it true, he asks? The news here is reporting that Michael Jackson's just had a heart attack, has been rushed to hospital. I look at the stage where Kenny's rehearsing the dancers. Surely if something had happened, somebody would have called us, wouldn't they? I walk down to the production desk. They tell me, yeah, they've heard something, but it's only on TMZ, and they can't really believe anything yet. Kenny looks surprisingly relaxed. This man's life has been surrounded and fogged in rumor and intrigue, he says. Until we know something to be true, let's keep on rehearsing. That's what Michael would want us to do. There's a surreal quality about the scene as Kenny continues to work with the dancers, but meanwhile everyone else is on their laptops and mobiles trying to to garner more information on the internet. But moments later, the tension in the room racks up a notch. The major networks are starting to carry the story now with more concrete news coming from the hospital and CNN reporting that Michael's actually died. There's a stunned silence after the nervous laughter of a few moments ago. Surely not it. It can't be, can it? Everything seems to be happening in slow motion now. Kenny takes a call from the producer, Paul Gongaware, who we understand is at the hospital with Michael, and then he slumps down in a chair. Someone cries out. One of the dancers collapses into another's arms, and it's clear what the news has been. Around the empty arena, it's suddenly very quiet. Michael Cotton, the set designer, hangs up on a phone call and looks at me with an expression of... Complete shock and incomprehension on his face and tears in his eyes. People talk quietly in small groups as the occasional clang as a piece of metal is put down on the floor or the crackle of a walkie-talkie, but mostly it's just silent and still. We're all floating in this tiny emotional bubble on the 
very spot where Michael made his triumphant comeback last night, just hours before this extraordinary tragedy took place. So this is it, I find myself thinking with some irony. After a few moments, we all gather together out on the floor, holding hands in a big circle, and with tears pouring down his cheeks, Kenny gives the most beautiful valediction. I've just had a call from the hospital from Paul Gongaware, who confirmed to me that Michael has passed away, he begins. And then he goes on to talk about the man who was his friend and his creative partner for so many years. He tells us that it's our duty to tell the world what Michael has achieved after these few nights, how he's still had his talent and his energy, and how we need to let people know what it is. As an hour later, I walk up the loading ramp and out into the arena for the last time. After a week of creativity and good humor, the place is now an empty vessel that represents only loss. Beyond the literal and emotional darkness of the inside of the building, the bright sunlight outside seems even more surreal than usual. That's so nice. I, I for one, can see the the massive commercial appeal of your diaries, so I sincerely hope they get published. It's a fantastic story, and it's beautifully, beautifully told. Thanks so much, Patrick Woodruff. We're just going to take a a, a five or ten minute break, uh, get some drinks, and, and we'll be back in a moment. So thank you. This podcast was brought to you by The Word. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.